Today's sermon really is a continuation, I'll say, of the Christmas story. And I'll, I'll take you through the, the connection there. I actually got to the connection working backwards. I came to the topic by thinking about Christmas things. Uh, so it's legitimate. I didn't force this. Um, but we're going to talk about repentance this morning. Um, Scott sometimes sings Christmas songs at Easter and sometimes sings Easter songs at Christmas. And that's completely legitimate because the Christmas story is much, much bigger than one night in Bethlehem. And uh, we'll talk more about that in a moment. Um, but let's get started. We'll, we'll start this morning reading uh, one text, um, and that's just a launching point. This is not really the focal text this morning, but we'll read it and talk about it, and it'll give us a sense of, of where we're headed. This is Acts 3.19. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now the context of, of this statement, this is Peter speaking here. This is what we would call his second sermon. If you remember, his first summer sermon happened on the day of Pentecost after the Holy Spirit was given and he preached that famous sermon where 3,000 people were saved. And now a few days later or sometime later we're not sure exactly how long later Peter and John have gone to the temple to pray and they on the way they meet this lame man a man who's been crippled uh, from his mother's womb so he's never been able to walk in his life and he is healed and the crowds the people that are watching that are amazed and they're and you know the the talk is is going around and Peter does an interesting thing. He looks at them and he says, Why are you amazed at this? Why does this fascinate you so? And he, we don't know who the people were around him. We get the impression that they were included, some of the Jewish leadership here in a moment. Um, but he, he points out to them, and quite possibly many of them were, were there to witness the events of the giving of the Holy Spirit perhaps. So perhaps that's one of the reasons he, he calls them on it. He says, why does this, why does this amaze you so? so? God is God, and he does these kinds of things. And why do you think John and I did this? This had nothing to do with us. This was Jesus. This is the power of Christ. And then he starts his sermon, and he goes back, and he waxes historical. And he talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And later on in there, he'll, talk, he'll even mention Samuel. So he... He, he goes through the Jewish history that led up to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. And then he will eventually wax prophetic, and he'll look forward, and he'll talk about things to come. And in fact, if you read in the verse we just read, in order that times of refreshing may come, if you want to study this on your own as he preaches on, you can see he's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. He says, you need to repent because he's coming back. And until you repent as a nation, he won't come back. So there's a lot tied up in, in that little verse. Um, but notice the order. It's kind of interesting. He says, therefore, repent and return in that order. Repent first and then return. Uh, why not return to God and then repent? Hmm. Let's think about that. Uh, repent, the word means, it's, it's a, I can't pronounce this Greek word, met, metanoeo. It means to think differently or afterwards. To think afterwards. 
Um, the, uh, the, the word is built from two other Greek words, uh, understand. One word means understand, the other word means after. So this word sort of means to understand after. And the sense of that is that you are taking a different path from this point forward. You've changed your way of thinking, understand, and after now we're going to do something different. So repent means to think differently going forward, in a sense. And so uh, what you'll find that may be surprising is when, uh, when people shared the gospel in the New Testament, almost always the first word of the gospel was repent. And that seems kind of odd to us. How is it that the good news begins with repent? That sounds like a reprimand. That, that sounds heavy. But it's, it's not heavy. It's not. It's good news. And at least seven times it shows up as the very first word as the gospel is presented. The first one you see on screen already. This is John the Baptist. He says, this is Matthew 3, 1 through 2. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John eventually got arrested and hauled off to prison. The ministry turned over to Jesus himself. Next, uh, the second example, the first word of Jesus' gospel was repent. After John was taken into custody, Jesus came unto Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Once again, look at the order. Repent and then believe. Don't you need to believe first before you can repent? Repent is always the focal point, the start. The starting place of the good news is repent. Third, the first word of the gospel in Jesus' instructions to the twelve. You remember when he sent them out. You'll recognize it there in verse 11. He says, any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet as a testimony against them. And they went out and they preached that people are to repent. That was his instruction as he sent them out to share the gospel. Uh, the next one, the fourth example, the first word of the gospel in Jesus' post-resurrection instructions to his disciples. This is one of the times when he saw them after his resurrection. Uh, the Bible says he, he took a bite out of a piece of broiled fish, and he said, so it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Repentance would be proclaimed. And you notice there he says beginning from Jerusalem. This, um, this mirrors the great commission that we're so familiar with in Matthew 28. It starts in Jerusalem and it spreads from there. And what spreads the first word of the gospel is repent. Uh, what number are we on? Five. It's the first word of the gospel in the first Christian sermon. This is Peter that we mentioned before on the day of Pentecost and he says he starts talking to them and they respond back they were pierced to their heart and said what are we to do now man you ask an evangelist that question what am I to do I mean what kind of an opening can you ask for well that's what Peter got and he said to them repent first word out of his mouth repent 
because I've got good news for you. And he goes on. Uh, sixth example, the first word of the gospel in the second Christian sermon. This is also Peter, and this is the one that we've already read this morning. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And finally, the seventh example I'll give you uh, is it, repent was the first word in the gospel of the Apostle Paul in his ministry. Uh, he, is, he, is kind of de he is defending himself in front of uh, Herod Agrippa at this point. He's been through Felix and Festus and all that stuff. You may remember those times. And he's sort of giving his testimony here to Agrippa. And he says, For that reason, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but continually proclaimed to those in Damascus first. Remember, he was saved on the road to Damascus, and he went to Damascus. And in Jerusalem, and then in all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they are to repent and turn to God. Notice the order. Repent and turn to God. The first word of the gospel is repent. The gospel begins with repent. And another way of saying that is the good news starts with repent. It's a, it's a joyous thing, a, a, a good thing. So, why is it good news and how does it relate to the Christmas story? Um, we'll, we'll get to the good news part more, but let's deal with Christmas right now. There are two primary connections. Uh, first of all is, is what the angel said to Joseph when he was uh, telling him what's going to happen with Mary. The angel said, She will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Uh, now just as, as an aside, the Jews of that day probably would have preferred to hear he will save his people from their enemies. These were, this was a Jewish nation that was, uh, that was under the oppression of the Romans, and they were looking for someone to save them from their enemies. But that's not what the angel said. The angel said he will save them from their sins. And as we know, there is a, de a distinct connection between your sins and your repentance, of course. Um, so now, today, you and I read that, and we might want it to say or, or we might interpret it to say he will save his people from the penalty of their sins and that is certainly true just like it is true that Jesus will eventually save Israel from her enemies Jesus will save us from the penalty of our sins but that's not what the angel said he said he will save them from their sins and the 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 pain and the suffering of our sins doesn't begin in eternity. It begins right here in this life. There are eternal consequences to our sins, and there are current, temporal, today consequences of our sins. Sins destroy us. They destroy us in eternity, and they destroy us right now today. And the solution to that begins with what? Repent. It's a good news word repent um, so the second uh, the second connection to uh, Christmas and I don't want to spend too much time on this although it's very interesting to me and uh, and you can and I have put together a whole sermon on the topic but uh, the, the the very idea of the nativity that we 
uh, celebrate at Christmas. Um, our, our nativities, we've got one out in the lobby there, a very small one that only has a few figurines. We've got one out in, in front of the office that's a little bit more elaborate, has a few more figurines. We've got a flat one right down here on the baptistry, if you haven't looked. We, we celebrate that event that happened in Bethlehem that, that night with these little nativity scenes. Well, our nativity scenes are not exactly complete. They're, they're just not from heaven's perspective, when, heaven pre- when God presents that nativity scene to us in the scriptures, it comes out a little bit differently. And it differs, it differs in three primary ways. The timing is different, the characters are a little bit different, and the emphases in the scene are a little bit different. With regard to the timing, our nativities basically capture one night out of a much, much longer story. When you see that nativity in the scriptures, it covers... Everything from Eden to the end times it covers everything that's all wrapped up in the Christmas story. And we see a nativity scene in the scripture several times that does that. Um, with regard to the characters, um, you know, our nativities have Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus and the wise men and the shepherds and some angels and some animals. Uh, and that's all fine. The... Uh, nativity scene viewed from heaven's perspective has one character that we always leave out and we'll talk about here in just a second but uh, moving on from timing and characters the difference in the emphases is our nativities focus on those characters I just mentioned Mary, Joseph, baby Jesus, etc, etc when you see that nativity in the scriptures the focus is narrower all those characters are, are legit but there's three characters in the nativity scene that the scriptures focus on. They focus on a woman giving birth, a male child that is to be born, and the devil opposing it all. We don't put Satan in our nativity scenes. And I think we should, because he's there. And and we'll talk about that more in detail. The the um, the easy place to start in looking at for a nativity scene in the scriptures is at the end. Go to Revelation. And you can do this later and don't do it right now while I'm talking. You can go to chapter 12 of Revelation. The entire chapter is one big presentation of the nativity. You go there, you will find there is a woman about to give birth. We interpret her to mean to represent Israel. There's a a man-child about to be born. And it's very, very clear in that passage that that is the Messiah, Jesus, who is born from this woman. And there's a dragon that's waiting to devour the child when it's born. And we don't, we don't have any question who that dragon is. The passage tells us he's also known as the serpent, and he's also known as Satan. And so throughout eternity, there has been this nativity scene where there's, there's a woman going to give birth, there's a male child to be born, and Satan is opposing it all. And you, you will find, if, you, if you've never thought about it, go back to the other end of the Bible. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. And if you remember there, after Adam and Eve have sinned, God sat them down and he had a little talk with them. And the serpent was there. And he told Eve some things that she was going to have to deal with. He told Adam some things that he was going to have to deal with. But then he also had a segment in his, in his uh, 
in his discussion with them that related just to Eve and the serpent. Remember that? He said Eve, uh, he talked about Eve's seed, Eve's offspring, and Satan and Satan's offspring. Um, the, the seed of the woman, the, the offspring of Eve, that word is singular. So she's the mother of all living. She has very, very plural offspring to this day. But there was one singular offspring that was in view there. And it was said, God said, the seed of the woman, the seed of Eve, will crush the head of the serpent. And he told the serpent, you will resist it, and you will get one good blow in, and you'll crush the heel of the woman's seed, but you won't destroy him. And so prophetically, God set up that same scene. There's a woman ready to give birth to a male child. We don't know when he's going to come. And Satan is there to oppose it. And, uh, and that, that same thing reflects, uh, you, you see it played out throughout the rest of Scripture. Over and over and over, you see, you can, you can interpret what happens in history as the devil's attempt to thwart this coming Savior, this coming male child who will fix things that went broken in the Garden of Eden. And you see that picture. Um, you, you see it all, you know, you, I won't go through it. Just imagine the, the Pharaoh tried to kill all the baby boys. You can imagine Satan working behind the scene to make that happen. Uh, Haman tried to kill all the Jews in, uh, in the book of Esther. He didn't succeed. Uh, Herod tried to kill the baby boys in Bethlehem before Jesus was born. He didn't succeed. And uh, the last one I'll mention, which is our connection to the Christmas story, is... Judas Scott stretches Christmas out 12 days the Bible stretches it from Eden to the end times we're going to stretch it this morning from Bethlehem and the birth of Christ to Easter when, when Satan was not successful in stopping the birth of the Messiah he went to other routes he tried tempting Jesus to sin and so he would disqualify him he tried everything and he got to the end and he started working through uh, Judas and uh, so how much time did I spend on, on that little part uh, study that someday study, study Revelation 12 and Genesis 3 you'll find it fascinating um, but Judas so the baby has been born he's grown up He's gone through his ministry, and now Satan is still trying to thwart God's plan before it, it comes to fruition. And he, he possesses, that's the term we like to use, this disciple named Judas. Uh, we won't read it, but Luke 22, verse 3 says that Satan entered Judas. And Judas went, and you know the story, he went to the chief priests and the temple officers and uh, for 30 pieces of silver, he said, I'll show you where he's going to be tonight. I'll help you capture him. And they did. And uh, after that, <clears throat> the Bible doesn't say this, but I suspect that after they captured Jesus and it became clear that, uh, that he was you know, going to be condemned, um, I think Satan left Judas. Judas was, was very efficient in his betrayal up to that point. But once he realized that uh, they really are going to condemn the man, 
he had some second thoughts. And I don't think he would have had those second thoughts if, if Satan was still possessing him. That's just completely free. You can do whatever you want with that. But what we do know, and we will look at this one, Matthew 27, 3 through 5, it says, Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse. He, he, it, when, it, when it became clear what he had really done, and they really are going to kill him. He's not going to, you know, take over the world at this point. He felt remorse. He was sorry. But as we can see coming, remorse is not repentance. Remorse is not repentance. And so uh, Judas is the first of three examples I'm going to show you this morning of failure to repent. Failure to repent. So let's, let's continue reading. When he saw that he had, when Jesus had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned. That's a pretty interesting statement coming out of Judas' mouth. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? You'll see to it yourself. Or in other words, that's your problem. Uh, and he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and left. And he went away and he hanged himself. So let's talk about Judas here. He showed remorse. But that wasn't repentance. That wasn't enough. He understood that he'd been wrong. And not only that, he understood why it was wrong. He had shed innocent blood. He knew what, was, what he had done was wrong. He knew what he had done was sin before God. But that wasn't enough. I, um, uh, back in the, in the 1970s and 80s, there was a, a man some of you may have heard of. His name was Arthur Blessed. You may remember him. He, uh, he's still alive as far as I know. But he, uh, he got started down in Southern California, and he would carry this big wooden cross around with him everywhere he went as he shared the gospel with people on the streets in L.A. and Hollywood and places like that. He started a, I don't guess you'd call it a church, but he had a, a gathering place. Uh, he called it his place. And he put it right next to a, uh, a topless dancing club. And, uh, and that's where he had his, his outreach from. He would walk the streets. He would share the gospel with his, with his cross on his shoulder. He'd share the gospel with prostitutes and the druggies and the criminals that he would find. He would go into the bars and lean his cross up against the wall and sit up on a stool next to some guy that uh, couldn't get off that stool, not literally, but uh, in, in his life he was stuck there. And he would share the gospel. And I heard him in an, in an interview once uh, talking about that. And he said, you know, I never told anyone in all that time that what they're doing is wrong. He said, they knew that. They knew they had a problem. They needed to know something else. They didn't, needed to know that there was a God who loved them who could take care of that sin because they could not get rid of it themselves. And I thought that was, I don't know about the rest of his theology, but I thought that was a very keen observation that uh, what they needed to know was how to deal with it, not that it was wrong. They already had that part down. So um, Judas knew what he'd done was wrong, but that wasn't enough. He rather ineptly tried 
to atone for his wrongdoing. He took the money back. Maybe if I don't profit from this, it'll be okay. But that didn't help. He couldn't atone himself for what he had done. Then he tried to cast blame, or share blame at least, with others. He, uh, in, uh, when he went back to the, the chief priests and he wanted them to take the money back, and they said, no, that, that sin is your problem. It says he threw the, the 30 pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary. Uh, that temple sanctuary is, um, we won't go into the, the word that it represents, but it's, it's a place in the temple where only the priests could go. And he threw the money in there. And he, in doing that, he was saying, you're a part of this. You're guilty of this along with me. He tried to blame someone else, and it didn't help. He went away, and he was swallowed by his own guilt because he couldn't get rid of it. And he hanged himself. He failed to repent. All those things he tried were not repentance. He never found the good news, which starts with repent. A changing of the mind going forward, thinking differently going forward. He was still trying to get out of his problem on his own all the way to the very end. Even throwing that rope around his neck and hanging himself was trying to deal with it himself. He, he failed to repent. Um, let's look at another example. Uh, and this will go back to the Old Testament, although it's referenced from the New. Esau. Uh, you remember Jacob and Esau were brothers, and Jacob cheated Esau, or, or um, let's put it this way, Jacob um, scammed Esau out of his birthright and cheated him out of his uh, blessing. And the New Testament talks about that, talks about Esau in Hebrews chapter 12. So let's read it here, beginning in verse 15. Uh, and I'm cutting some of it out because there's more going on in this than just uh, the part about Esau. See to it, verse 16, that there be no sexually immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance though he sought for it with tears. A lot of people read this passage and think, God is so mean. Esau wanted to repent, and God wouldn't accept his apology. That's not what it says. That's not what happened. Uh, we don't have time to go back and read. It's about three chapters in Genesis 25 through 27 where all this took place. You probably remember the story. Initially, Esau had been out hunting, and came back and he was tired and dirty and starving. He was just hungry. And his brother had made a pot of soup. And Esau sold his birthright as the firstborn to his brother for a bowl of soup. The Bible says back in, in Genesis 25:34, he despised his birthright. He held that birthright of his in contempt. It was worth no more to him than a bowl of soup until the consequence of what he had done wrong came home to roost. And a little bit later, you know the story, it was time for uh, Isaac to pronounce the blessing on the boys, and the firstborn always got the first blessing. 
and in this case, Jacob just flat cheated his brother out of that blessing. Uh, Esau was completely complicit, completely willing in, in giving away his birthright for nothing. But he got cheated out of his blessing. He didn't have anything to do with that other than still being Esau, the kind of person who would throw away his birthright. Um, so you know that story. Uh, Bible tells us that he found no place for repentance. Well, let's, let's pick him apart. In despising his birthright for one bowl of soup, he was doing what you and I do all the time, and that's living for the moment, living for what feels good right now, placing more importance on what's happening in my life right now, what can make me feel good today, than in matters that have eternal consequence. Uh, he was living in the moment, and he despised his birthright. How many of us have despised our birthright? We have a birthright, a right to intimacy with the Lord. And when we set that aside, and we fail to pursue that because we like what's going on in my life right now, uh, we, we become sort of like Esau. So he despised his birthright. Um, later... He, he tried, and I'm kind of inferring this, he tried to ignore or minimize the consequences of what he'd done when he sold his birthright. It, it was, in his mind, it was like, yeah, maybe, maybe that wasn't such a good deal, but at least I still get the blessing of my father. I, I lost something big, but I've got, I've got other things that will make up for it. I have the blessing of my father. And he didn't say that beforehand. He said something about that afterwards. Um, because he did something similar to what Judas did when after Jacob cheated him out of his, his uh, blessing and he went in to his father to receive his blessing and realized the blessing had already been bestowed on his brother. Uh, he, was, he was just completely broken about it. All the consequences of the person he was came to bear on him and he started acting like Judas. He wanted to cast blame and he blamed it all on his brother. And he said, and I'm quoting from Genesis 27, 36, He has betrayed me these two times. And there's, there's truth to that. There's truth that Jake, Jacob was a scoundrel. Uh, but Esau was completely willing and complicit in giving away that birthright at the beginning. He couldn't cast that part of the blame away. Yes, Jacob had lots of blame. But pointing to Jacob's blame didn't do a thing for his. And he was still stuck in the consequences of what he had done. And, uh, and he didn't repent. He, he was trying to make it better in his own way. And he swore he was going to kill his brother and all that sort of thing, get revenge. He tried things to fix it, and he couldn't fix it. And the New Testament, because he didn't repent, the New Testament describes him as godless. You see that? Uh, uh, don't be like this godless man Esau. That word um, godless there is a Greek word, bebelos, and it, it's interesting. It means accessible, lawful to be trodden. And the idea is it's a, it, it refers to a public place. And the picture is there's a door or a gate, and on the inside it's private. My home is my home, and you don't come in there unless I invite you in. 
outside my door, it's public. Anybody, anything can be out there. And the, the, the better picture in the scripture here is the, the gate of the temple or the door of the temple. Inside, only the holy come in. Outside, the opposite of holy. And that's the word that was used to describe Esau because he wouldn't or couldn't, he didn't know how to repent of what he had done wrong. He didn't get to the good news because he never went to repent. He tried to deal with it himself. Very, very similar uh, to Judas when you stop and think about the steps that he did not take or the steps that he did try to take that, uh, that didn't work. Um, let's look at one more example. Jezebel. And this is the Jezebel in the New Testament. If you remember, uh, Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. This is from the letter to the church at uh, Thyatira. And he's telling them, he tells them all what's going on, what's good with them, and then he tells them what's bad. And here's the bad. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. We can go on to the next slide. He's, God, uh, Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. So her case is just a little bit different. Uh, Scholars debate and argue who Jezebel was in that church. Was she a real woman or did she represent something else? Uh, was the sexual immorality they're talking about literal or does that really refer to a spiritual kind of an adultery, spiritual adultery thing? Um, I don't think it matters for the point that we're making here this morning. Uh, this woman was given time to repent and she did not want to. Unlike Judas and Esau, they wanted to, they just didn't, weren't willing to do it. They thought they could take care of themselves. They recognized what was wrong and wanted to fix it. This woman didn't want to fix anything. Very interesting. Um, in giving her time to repent, that's, that's an expression of God's grace. Jesus is saying, look at what you're doing in this otherwise wonderful church of mine. And by His grace, He let her continue for a while. Uh, because of his grace he gave her time to repent and what's wrapped up in that time I think is two things one is opportunity he gave her opportunity to change the way she thought going forward with God's help and she wasn't interested she passed up that opportunity time ran out on her and the second thing that time gave her was ability because Jesus is talking to this church. The church is not just a human uh, institution. Jesus is the head of the church. He's there. And he said, I gave her time. I'm here ready to help you with this, Jezebel. He gave her the right to repent. And he gave her the resources, that ability that neither uh, Judas nor Esau seemed to know how to find that ability because they didn't go to Jesus. Um, both the right and the resources. We won't look at these, but there are several places in the scriptures where uh, that notion of a right to repent shows up. 
um, Peter at one point was reporting back to the church in Jerusalem about his ministry to the Gentiles. And he was telling them, you know, they're, they're being saved. The Holy Spirit is, is coming into them. They are worshiping God and all these things. And in Acts eleven eighteen, the it says, When they, the people of the Jerusalem church, heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has also granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. He granted the right to repent to them. Um, when we sin, God doesn't owe us a thing. He doesn't owe me the opportunity to repent. But He grants that to me. And He was willing to grant that to Jezebel. And Jezebel liked what she was doing and didn't want it. Um, another example, Paul told, uh, writing to young Timothy as a pastor in 2 Timothy 2, he's telling him how he should deal with Difficult people in the church, let's say. And he says, The Lord's bondservant, that's you, Timothy, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, skillful in teaching, patient when wronged. And he, the assumption there is that he is wronged by some of the people in, in the congregation. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Why? If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. You don't know, Timothy, whether God's going to grant them that and they're going to repent and they're going to become wonderful children of God. That's not your job to, to, uh, to judge that. So this granting of a right to repent tells us something about what repentance is. It's a privilege. It's a right. It's good news. When God convicts my heart that I need to repent of something, that's a good thing. That's God's grace toward me that say, I will spare you the eternal consequences of what you're doing. And I will also spare you what it's doing to you right now. I will spare you that. It's a good thing. The first word of the gospel is repent. Um, so in all three of these examples, the sinner was unable to repent by his or her own doings what they tried and the sinner was unable to repent without being called by God and even in that case Jezebel didn't repent uh, we need the Lord we need Jesus Christ our Savior in order to change our thinking going forward we cannot repent on our own we will be just like Judas stuck with what I am I'm stuck here and the only way out that he saw was to kill himself. Uh, we don't need that. We need the Lord. We need the right he has given us to repent. So why is it so hard to repent then? A um, lot of reasons. Jezebel just didn't want to. She was enjoying what she was doing. Uh, in, in Jacob and e uh, not Jacob, uh, Judas and Esau's cases, they saw the problem they had caused themselves. But repentance was hard because they were relying on themselves. And self-reliance doesn't help with these things. Um, the good news starts with repent because the bad news is sin. 
And sin is bad news, as we've said, because it has both these eternal and temporal consequences that are just ruinous to us. We think we're having fun for a while. We think we're enjoying this, but they ruin us. Um, so sometimes, like Esau, we try to ignore the damage we've done to ourselves. Sometimes, like Judas and Esau, we try to shift the blame somewhere else. Well, my parents didn't teach me the right way to go. I, I was poor. I was this. You know, other people hurt me. Um, we try to cast blame, and, and it doesn't help. Sometimes, like Judas and Esau, we try to fix the damage ourselves. We pay the money back. We, it's, it's self-improvement. I can do something to make myself better. And I, it, it, an interesting thing to do sometimes is to go to the bookstore and find the self-improvement aisle. Have you ever walked that aisle in the bookstore? And just look at all the junk that people have thought up to try to help us deal with what's wrong with us and so, you know much of it completely contradictory with itself but it just goes on and on and it's just um, unbelievable how hard we try to fix ourselves when all we really need to do is repent let the Lord take care of that um, sometimes like Jezebel we simply despise God's grace we don't want it and uh, God help us when we refuse to repent and as I asked before, how many of us, like Esau, uh, will despise the birthright we have for an intimate relationship with God because we are stuck on ourselves? Um, the process that begins with repent is shown in several ways in the Bible. It goes by different words, different, different names. Uh, Jesus talked to Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3, and he said, you need to be born again. Uh, Paul taught in, uh, in the book of Romans chapter 10 uh, that those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And uh, we, we use the terminology, get saved, we're going to accept Christ. We have all kinds of, m most of them biblical phrases and terms for the same process. Um, but they're all the same thing. They're all descriptions of trusting Jesus and allowing Him to change my thinking going forward. That's repenting. I know I've been wrong. I don't know how to stop it. I'll let you change me going forward, Lord, and give your heart to Him. So if there's anyone here who has never done that and who needs to do that, um, know that you can come talk to me here in a moment. Uh, we're, I think we're going to sing a, a song of invitation. You can come talk to me. You can feel free to talk to any of our pastors. If you're online, there, is a, um, there are some pointers there for how to uh, get in touch. Um, don't, don't wallow in your guilt like Judas did. Repent. It's good news.